Verse 20. But Peter said to Simon, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have, listen, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. You know what that says literally? You have no part or portion in this logos. That's the word. Translated matter there is logos. You have no part in the logos. What's the logos? Jesus Christ. He is the word, the logos that became flesh and dwelt among us. And Peter says, you have no part in this. That's a stern statement. Man, Peter's bringing it home, isn't he? I mean, first Ananias and then Sapphira and now Simon. This guy's not backing down. He's, he's a tough cookie. You have no part in the Logos. Peter, by Holy Spirit discernment, sees right through Simon, who is role-playing. Simon's good with the sleight of hand, but his heart is not right with God. You can make all kinds of professions of faith. You know that? You can say you believe. You can get baptized. You can go to church. Simon did. But if the heart is not changed, you are no different than the demons. Who James says in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Just saying I believe, that's, that's not what it's about. Well, well then what's it about? Relationship. It's about knowing the Lord. Desiring to know Him. Inviting Him to know you. To to walk together with Him. Verse 22. Therefore, Peter says, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Those two things are fascinating. In fact, I think that's an entire Sunday morning sermon right there. Do I want to save it? The gall of bitterness. Why would Simon be in the gall of bitterness? I'll just say this much. He's bitter because here comes Philip doing things that Simon can't even begin to do. And there's something in the heart. On the outside, he believes, he gets baptized, he's following after Philip, but on the inside, he's getting bitter. Why do these guys have this and I don't? Let me just tell you, there is no place for that in the church. Why does he and I don't? Why does she, but I don't get to... It's the gall of bitterness and it will eat you up. And it was eating up Simon in his heart. And the bondage of iniquity, well that's just plain slavery to sin. And I think his bondage to iniquity was in his magic, in his magic arts. And and let me just say, I know there are cute magic kits out there kids can play with. I know there are games where kids can play magic stuff. Be careful, moms, dads, kids. Be careful. It's just pretend, yeah, it's pretending to be dark. Do we really want to do that? There are video games out there where you can play, you can role play the dark side, and I don't think that's a good thing. Boy, it's just playing. No, it's it's imitating darkness. I'm just a little magic kid. I got it at Disneyland. Well, maybe you shouldn't. Anyway, sorry, my opinion. So, verse 24, But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
He says, repent, Simon, and pray that the Lord will forgive you. Simon says, oh, pray for me yourselves so this won't happen to me. Irenaeus, early church father, in his book Against Heresies, tells us that Simon, this Simon, founded Gnosticism. What's Gnosticism? 1 Timothy 6.20 Paul says to Timothy, Guard what has been trusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called the Gnosis. The knowledge. It's Gnosticism. It was that early in the church. There was always already this, this sect, this offshoot of people who, who were a cult. And Paul says, some have professed this gnosis and have gone astray from the faith. Irenaeus also tells us that Simon goes up to Tyre, gets himself a slave girl there, buys her out of the region of Tyre, and brings her back and begins calling her the Anoia. The Anoia, which means the divine mind, the feminine deity. She's the Anoia, which I think some probably found annoying. But this is the one, the Anoia, from whom all angelic powers and even creation itself in the material universe has come from the Anoia. And Irenaeus tells us that came from Simon. Did Simon become a believer? Well, he said he believed he was baptized, tried to buy his way in. Hippolytus of Rome, a 3rd century theologian, adds that Simon had himself buried alive in Rome, promising to rise on the third day, and it didn't work. And that was it for Simon. He stayed buried. And a cult will bury you. False teaching will smother you. And the lies of the enemy will kill you. Simon stayed buried. John 10.10, Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That is the purpose of the devil. And it is in every other belief system aside from faith in Jesus. It is just to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I think the most telling sign, however, that Simon did not have a true heart change was in his own refusal to pray. Pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that none of this happens. You know what? If you can't even talk to the Lord yourself, do you really believe? If if you have zero prayer life, and if you are one who struggles with even knowing how to pray or what to pray, I'm not trying to get down on you. I'm just saying, look, if you're not communicating with the Lord, you have no relationship. How would it be if my wife and I never talked? I mean, you know, the husband who said to his wife, I told you I loved you on our marriage, on our wedding day, if it changes, I'll let you know. It was the last thing he said to her. Well, that's a marriage that's just made in heaven, isn't it? The point is, you do not have a relationship without communication. There is zero relationship if you're not able to just talk to the Lord. Well, I don't know what to say to God. Great, start there. Dear Lord, I don't know what to say. I'm sure that your father would smile and go, well, good, at least we're talking. Simon refused to pray, and to me that indicates zero relationship. And Jesus said of the Simons of this world, or at least of people like this, 
Matthew 7.22 Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in name cast out demons? And in your name perform many, many miracles? And in your name do all kinds of magic tricks? I added that. Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And we come right back to the same thing. We have been over this and over this and over this. It is about a relationship with Jesus. And where there's no relationship, there is no salvation. How do I know I'm saved? Do you know Jesus? Do you talk to Him? Do you trust in Him? Do you desire to spend time with Him and to know Him better? Why are you even asking if you're saved? Of course you're saved. You're in a relationship with Jesus. Verse 25. So, when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem, and I love this, and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Who were? Peter and John. John, the son of thunder who wanted to burn out a city, is now preaching Jesus to all the cities of the Samaritans as they make their way back to Jerusalem. Gang, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the word is getting out. Why hadn't it yet gone to Samaria? Why, on the day the church exploded in Jerusalem, did it stay there? You would at least expect it to trickle down to Judea, but why didn't it get to Samaria? Well, you Bible students know this. The rift between Samaritans and Jews was very, very deep. The hatred, the animosity. The Jews called the Samaritans dogs and half-breeds. Because back in 720 B.C., when Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel... What the Assyrians did was they took all the power players, all the leaders, all the the big people in Samaria, in the northern kingdom, and they carted them off into captivity, and they let the poor and the destitute and, and a handful of them stay, and then they brought in people from Assyria and other nations, and they mixed, and they intermarried. And Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, expressly forbade intermarriage between Jews and other nationalities. They had to marry a Jew. Well, now these Jews in Samaria, these leftovers from the captivity, are marrying and and they become the Samaritans. That's the history of the Samaritans, where it began. The Jews came back from Babylon after Judea was conquered, the, the southern kingdom. They go off to Babylon. Seventy years later, in 538 B.C., they come back. Guess what happened? <laughs> Ezra did not accept the Samaritans' help with the temple. A bunch of the Samaritans, who in the book of Ezra, chapter 4, are called enemies of the people, showed up and they said, hey, uh, we'd like to help you. It was probably a sham. They probably just wanted to mess things up. We don't know for sure. But Ezra said, nope, this is our work, not yours. That just ticked them off even more. Nehemiah comes along, and suddenly now the Samaritans are acting like terrorists. Calling out the people, threatening the people who were trying to build the wall around Jerusalem. And that, gang, that was 500 years before Jesus. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, understand that to tell a parable like the good Samaritan, what? That's offensive. That's like telling the parable of the good dog. How would you, what? 
Now think back now to the earlier question. There's this deep rift between the Samaritans and the Jews. What was withheld from the Samaritans when they were baptized into Jesus? The baptism of the Holy Spirit? Or the Holy Spirit Himself? Now, some would say, well, it has to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit because you have to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when you believe Jesus and are baptized. Chapter and verse, Acts 2.38. That's what it says, so it has to be that way. To which I reply, really? Has to? Are we telling God now how He has to do things? He promised you would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism. Personally, I think it was both. When they were baptized into the name of Jesus, they all these people in this town, they're going into the water, they're coming out of the water, they're whooping, they're hollering, they're praising God, they're shouting hallelujah, and there was no indwelling Holy Spirit, and there was no baptism of the Holy Spirit. Faith was there. The obedience was there. The Word was there. The joy was there. The Spirit was not. Now, just to muddy the waters a little more for you, Compare this story with Acts chapter 2 and with Acts chapter 10. Chapters 2, 8, and 10. On your own time, look at the three stories. All three involve baptism. All three involve the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All three involve the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And all three are completely different. Three conversion scenarios. Three power scenarios. And all three of them are completely different even though all those things happen. They just happen in completely different orders. Well, that makes me uncomfortable. Get used to it. We like things so, you know, cut and dried and and legal. That's where legalism comes from. We want to know the exact, we want to know how close to sin we can get. We want to know exactly what we have to do. And God doesn't give it to you in the book of Acts. He doesn't give you the exact. He says, hey... Get to know the baby. You know, be a part of the baby. Grow up like a child would grow up. Child doesn't know everything at first. Child grows in relationship with the father. And that's what he desires for us. And so that's why it's not always the same. And you might say, man, but this whole thing doesn't fit my experience or my tradition. To which I would reply, the Bible must be read and understood in light of the Bible. Not in light of your experience. Not in light of your tradition. Lord Jesus, don't allow my experiences to shade truth. To make truth fit the way I think it needs to fit. I just want to know what the truth is, period. And the best way to do that is to look at what the Bible says about it and compare it to what the Bible says about it. And you know what the Bible says about salvation? About baptism, water baptism, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's a package deal. God wants to give it all to you. He wants you to have the whole thing. Well, I I was baptized, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but I don't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know, Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more does your Heavenly Father want to give His Holy Spirit to those who ask? So ask. I believe it's all for us. I believe it's all available to us. And don't forget Jesus, who was the first to take the gospel to Samaria. 
We know his intentions. It was the salvation of the Samaritans, right? Okay, so why then the delay of the Holy Spirit? Why do these people all believe, get baptized, and no spirit? Why? And the answer is very simple. This was Samaria. This was Samaria. And both these Samaritans and the new church, the baby, needed to witness firsthand God's seal of approval on these people. They needed to understand God meant it. That it was official. That it was serious. Well, why couldn't Philip do that? Because Peter and John needed to see it too. They needed to see that by the laying on of hands, Samaritans were receiving the Holy Spirit just like Jews in Jerusalem. That the church was bigger than simply the Jews. It is now Judea and Samaria. And guess what? It's going to get bigger still. The next thing to kind of topple their thinking is all the ends of the earth. That's on the agenda too. But God's raising the baby. The church needed to understand it. The Samaritans, man, they needed to understand it. And it's what Paul said in Ephesians 1, verse 4 and verse 13. I've told you before, and I find this fascinating. In the first 12 verses of the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul is speaking to the Jewish people. Promises wonderful blessings for the Jewish people. Now, we're grafted into that as believers. But in verse 13, he changes his tone, turns and starts speaking to the Gentiles. Listen to the difference. Ephesians 1.4 of Israel, he says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Who did He choose? The chosen people, the Jews. But in verse 13, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, In Him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Why does God withhold withhold the Holy Spirit until Peter and John come? So that the Samaritans can understand they are being sealed with His Spirit. That it wasn't a Philip thing. And it wasn't a water baptism thing. It was an apostolic thing that comes right from the heart of the beginning of the church in Jerusalem now spilling right down into Samaria. God is saying to the Jews and Samaritans alike, I approve. And here's my spirit so you can know for certain. He sets his seal on the Samaritans. Isn't God marvelous? Why does he do it differently? Because he knew he needed to. Because he knew the people needed to understand. It's the same reason, by the way, God will send Peter to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, a Gentile. And before Peter is even done preaching to the family there, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius. See, that one's completely weird. Before water baptism, before even the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is just poured out on them. They start speaking in tongues. Peter's like, okay, dude, Gentiles too. It's not just the Jews, it's not just the Samaritans, it is now all the ends of the earth. That's the next thing on the agenda. Now listen to me carefully, because this is one of those moments where I have to get uncomfortably serious. Some would say today, and I hate to bring this up again, but I have been recently asked this question again today. How is the LGBT community of today any different than the Samaritans of yesterday? 
And that question is going around in the church. And some are answering that, you know what, you're right. We need to accept them just like God accepted the Samaritans, just like God accepted the Gentiles. Here's the deal. The LGBT community is not a race. The Gospel goes out to all people. goes out to all sinners of whom I was one. You're not a sinner anymore. I, I still have the propensity and the ability to sin. Yes, I do. But I am now named by Jesus and forgiven. But the Gospel goes out to all people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The LGBT community is not a race because biologically they cannot be. Well, so you're saying that someone in that community can't get saved? No, I didn't say that. Not at all. But like anyone who gets saved, life changes. It must. You're now a new creature. We were talking about this actually in staff meeting today. Brilliant. Brian said, when people say to me, I was born that way, I said, well, I, I say, well then you need to be born again. Because when you're born again, you are born to a new life in Jesus by the grace of God and you no longer live the old life of sin. Well, you're just being bigoted. I would say this to a couple living together. Man and woman. Living outside of of biblical marriage, I'd say it's the same thing. Really? But Rick, I did that once. Yeah, and Paul murdered the church. Let it go. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Revelation 5.9, speaking of the church in heaven, says they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. Who was slain? Jesus. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Gang, Jesus purchased us. And I'm not willing to let go a lifestyle that's displeasing to God. It wasn't like He purchased me with silver or gold or precious metals. He bought me with His blood. And He calls every one of us in all of humanity out from who we were to become who He desires us to be in Christ. A new creation. Alright, quickly, the third man. You're going to do a whole other story. This goes fast. Watch. Third man is the Ethiopian. Okay? So now we've seen Philip. We see the baby at work here. We see Peter, John understanding things. The church is growing. We see the Samaritan saved. We see Simon, the, the magician, where his heart was. Now, third man, Ethiopian official, verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up! Go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. In the middle of the Samaritan revival, God says, okay, Philip, you're out. I want you to go south to the desert. Um, Lord, do you see what's happening here? I got this big, big burgeoning church movement thing going on. I, mean, I, could, I could stay here and teach Samaritans and at least serve in their widow's food distribution program for this city. God sends him away from this big to-do. Why? Well, because His ways are not our ways. Verse 27. 
So he got up and went. I love that. Simple obedience. It's what servers of tables do. They just do what they're told. He got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. This guy's a higher up in the administration. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 28, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading (laughs) the prophet Isaiah. Clearly this Ethiopian is searching for truth. Just as clearly, I'm not sure he had found it in Jerusalem. By the way, some people connect the dots between Solomon and the queen of Sheba, calling Sheba Ethiopia. And there's actually a long tradition, a traditional line of kings in Ethiopia who claim they go all the way back to Solomon himself. There's only one little problem with that, and that is historically Sheba was probably Yemen. And so this Candace of Ethiopia was probably connected to Ethiopia as we know it today, not Yemen. Okay, and the Queen of Sheba would have come from Yemen, not Ethiopia. So it's, it's a whole thing. It doesn't really matter. The bottom line is this Ethiopian was hungry for God. Hungry for God. In verse 29, he's sitting there, he's reading Isaiah. Have you ever read Isaiah? This guy's just trying to figure it out. You know what's missing? He doesn't have the key. He's trying to understand Isaiah. He doesn't have the key. Then the Spirit said, notice the Spirit says this, not an angel. It was an angel before who said, Philip, go south. And now the Spirit says, go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran. Go, Philip. See, that's just great. He doesn't go, okay, Lord. You tell me to, I will. Saunters up. Sachets. No, he runs. And he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. So this is where he's reading right here. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, Philip does what Philip does. He preached Jesus to him. That's one of my favorite lines in all the Bible. He preached Jesus to him. That is what Philip does. That is what every servant of Jesus Christ is called to do. Man, preach Jesus. So that the Spirit sends him down to this powerful, influential Ethiopian treasurer sitting dead still in the middle of a desert road because he couldn't get his faith started up. Because he didn't have the key. And he asked the right question and he's reading the right word. Again, he hadn't found faith in Jerusalem in the rituals of the temple, in the teachings of the Jewish people, he found a fascination with the Word of God. That drew his attention, so he's in the right place. God knows about all this, and while there's this massive movement happening in Samaria, God says, yeah, but I want this guy. And so he sends Philip with the key, with Jesus. Philip turns the key and ignites this guy's heart. I love the phrase, beginning from the Scripture... Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. 
And it is the most fundamental aspect of the Christian walk. Preach Jesus. What am I supposed to do? Preach Jesus. My son, Hayden, sent me a text yesterday as I was studying this. I loved it. It The timing was perfect. The question he asked me, Dad, how would you respond to people saying that Christians are horrible and malicious and violent because they cause things like the Crusades and all that nonsense? How do I answer this? I texted back, Hayden, tell them to stop looking at the people and start looking at the founder. I am not a Christian because of Christians. I am a Christian because of Christ. Amen. Christians are going to mess it up all the time. I have. You will. So we don't preach the church. And we don't preach other Christians. And we don't preach a movement. We don't preach a creed. We preach Jesus. And we talk about Jesus. Philip didn't preach the church. Oh, well listen, let me explain this to you. But first got to tell you what's happening in Samaria right now. Oh, you got to go up to Jerusalem. Well, he had just come from Jerusalem, didn't he? He had probably seen some church people. He doesn't preach Christians. He preached Jesus to him. And verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? So I don't know how long they're riding along the road. It's interesting because as they went along the road, so they got the chariot started up again. They turned the key. And they're going along, and the Ethiopian asks about getting baptized. Well, clearly, Stephen, or I'm sorry, not Stephen, Philip has now taken him, Philip's taken him from Isaiah 53 to water baptism. He's covered quite a bit of ground. Explaining the gospel of Jesus, you know, it's not that hard. It's really not. Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Some say verse 37 was inserted. I would disagree. There's plenty of ancient evidence to say it is as valid as any other verse in the chapter. Verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And my friends, it's so simple. If you believe, you're good to go. He doesn't say, well, if you believe in Jesus, I want to take you through an eight-week course and we'll see how you fare. At the end of that, perhaps maybe then we'll baptize you. No, you believe with all your heart, then you can get baptized. Great. Into the water they go. No training manuals, no courses, just faith. And it's exactly what Jesus had said. Matthew 16, or Mark 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. By the way, this is one of the many places in the Bible that teaches believers baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. What does that mean? It means that the believer chooses to be baptized. Which is something an infant cannot do. Now, so Rick, wait, no, so you're saying if, if, if I was infant baptized that I'm not saved? No, I didn't say that. Baptism doesn't save you. The grace of God saves you. But I am saying there was a, there was a, a right way to do it. Believe and be baptized. The key is Jesus. The ignition switch is right on the heart. That's where it all gets started. If you don't believe, what's the point of the water? It's just water. It's a nice bath, but it's not baptism. Every 
every instance of baptism in the book of Acts starts with faith. Simon Magus believed with his head and did not have faith and was baptized and it meant nothing. If my understanding and if history is correct on this issue. And if I'm wrong, I'll apologize to Simon in heaven. The Ethiopian believed with all his heart and into the water he goes. And another thing, this is an absolutely clear biblical example of baptism by immersion. They went down into the water and they came up out of the water. Why did they go into the water if he was going to sprinkle them? It make a whole lot of sense. Of course, you know, Bible students, the word baptizo in the Greek means to immerse. So that's what they did. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. Verse 39. Then they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord, I love it, snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. That's just amazing. What, what, what's, what's that say? The, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The phrase, harpazo. It's where we get the word rapture. Raptus in the Latin. Harpazo in the Greek. Philip got raptured. Not very far. In fact, verse 40 says, Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, hang on with me just a second longer here. Philip got harpazoed. Right? And I read that and I thought, why can't that happen to me on a Wednesday night? That would save me a lot of gas. You know? Amen. And I'm home. You know, cutting up my apple and hanging. He gets just popped out of here. And you will, and I will, in Jesus, pop out of here. First Thessalonians 4.16 The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Caught up. Harpazod. Raptus. Raptured. Same word. And so we will always be with the Lord. When? When? Soon. Soon. Philip just gets popped 20 miles north of where they were. They're on the road to Gaza, and now he ends up at Azotus. You might know this in your Bibles. Azotus is Ashdod. The city of Ashdod is still there on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. So he now is near Gaza with the Ethiopian and baptizes him and just, bam, looks around. Oh, I'm in Ashdod. <laughs> wow. So what does he do? That's my favorite thing. He passed through and kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea because that's what Philip does. He starts out preaching Jesus in Samaria. He preaches Jesus to the Ethiopian and he starts preaching Jesus all the way up probably the, the maritime way, the, the, uh, the Via Maris, that is the, the road along the sea, all the way up to Caesarea. There in Caesarea, he took a wife He had four daughters there, all of whom grew up to be prophetesses. Acts chapter 21, verse 8. Luke writes, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. 
And I read that and I thought, how do you raise a prophet for a daughter? It's not by a lot of hard work and investment. That's not the right kind of profit you want to give your daughter. P-R-O-F-I-T. If you're not picking up what I'm putting down. It's not hard work and investing that makes a daughter profit. Eternally, that will profit her very little. So what do you do? You preach Christ to her. Philip, I believe, did with his daughters what he did in every town along the road up to Caesarea, what he did with the Ethiopian, what he did in Samaria. He preached Jesus. That's what we do. We preach Jesus to our children. We preach Jesus to our friends. We preach Jesus to our loved ones. We preach Jesus in this world like Philip. Just go about preaching Jesus. What about the Ethiopian? Well, we're told in verse 39, he went on his way rejoicing. And it's my hope that you can do the same thing tonight. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it. Rejoice. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the blessing of the scriptures. Thank you for the example, Lord Jesus, of Philip the evangelist, who started out as Philip the waiter. And I pray, Lord, that we will emulate that behavior. We will just be simple followers, disciples, bondservants of Jesus Christ who preach Jesus everywhere we go. We praise You, Lord Jesus, and it's in Your name we pray tonight. Amen.